my own study and and like I said you may you may have a different way of of doing things and that's okay because there is really no one way um, to study um, so last week <clears throat> if you would if you have your Bibles there turn to Romans 4 <clears throat> so last week I preached Romans chapter 4, verses 4 to 8. Uh, I'd been gone for a couple of weeks. I think I missed uh, three Sundays. And Jason, one of the elders at our church, um, had filled in for those three Sundays. And so coming back, uh, the next uh, part of Romans uh, for me was Romans 4, verses 4 to 8. And so the thing that I wanted to do... Uh, that was the thing that I often do uh, when approaching any passage of Scripture. This is one of the benefits of coming into a book that you've already been preaching through. You already have the flow of things. You already see how um, you know, things have, have fit together. And going back to what me and uh, one of the brothers were talking about earlier, you're seeing from the very beginning, I'm going over again, rehashing some of these things that we saw in the beginning of Romans which is Paul's introduction, who he's speaking to. He's talking to the church at Rome. His goal is to uh, bring about uh, to them uh, the knowledge of God, knowledge of Christ, the work of Christ. There's so much theology in the book of Romans, but it is according to what was previously written. And look, looking at the book of Romans and seeing the flow of thought from from the Old Testament to the New, Paul is establishing that what was told prior is now happening. It's occurred. Here's, here's the results of that. Here's the implications of that, etc., etc. So what I, what I want to do when I come to a passage of Scripture is I want, to, I want to look at everything that has taken place up to this point. I want to rehash everything so that I can, once again, have into my mind the author's intent, uh, the, the author's flow of thought. I will take, uh, one thing I will do as well is I will take this, this particular passage and I will make a, uh, a uh, uh, sentence diagram. I will do that. Um, I want to take the main indicative statement or the interrogative statement or maybe the command that is given and I want to put underneath it, indented to the right, the, the statements that are supporting this particular statement. So I know what my main uh, point is going to be right here, and then I know that these particular sentences here are, are modifying that or they're expounding on that, and I do that for the entire passage. The only time that I really uh, probably won't go that route is, is especially if I'm taking a, a big chunk. And sometimes, uh, like going through the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, there are portions of Ecclesiastes that you're taking big chunks, at least it, for me it was. So I really didn't do much sentence outlining uh, that way or sentence diagramming. But when you're taking, you know, four, five, six, seven, whatever uh, verses, then making a diagram is very helpful because it will help you to see this is a main statement that is being made. These particular statements, especially if they begin with the word for, <coughs> You know, for this, you know, we, we look at uh, John three sixteen for example, for God so loved the world, but we 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 take it and we isolate it. But John three sixteen is expounding what was previously said. So, 
I want to take the sent, uh, I want to take the passage of scripture. I want to make the the main statements and then the statements that are um, modifying it or contrasting. And in this passage of scripture, there is a lot of contrast there. Like in verse four, for example, you have now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but what is due. Then the next verse five is also contrasting what was just said. So I want to keep in mind as I'm making my my diagram, I want to keep in mind certain contrasts that are there or certain modifying statements that are there. I want to circle some of the verbs that are there because especially within this portion of God's word, he says, he says credited a number of times just in this particular uh, set of verses. So I want to, I want to make notes of that. I want to, I want to, you know, make sure that, that I'm underlining certain words so that as it's being brought out to the congregation that, that I can expound that very thing. What does it mean to be blessed, for example? Does it just mean happy? Well, what does the word mean? And we'll look at that in a minute, but that's just an example. So when I make my, my diagram, I'm making main statements, seeing what the main uh, indicative statement is, or the main uh, question that's being asked, or the command that is being given, and then the sentences underneath it that are modifying that or elaborating on that or contrasting that so i want to make that first <clears throat> but then i just want to observe the text i just want to make observations so <clears throat> for my observations i have you know these three pages right here of the observations that i made just in the text and again i'm taking what i have previously understood and and bringing all that into this set of verses. So, for example, I want to rehash some things. So I wrote down, like, beginning in chapter 1, Paul has indicted all as guilty before God. The Gentiles who do not have the law are guilty. The Jews who do have the law are guilty. Uh, and keeping in mind, too, some of the other things that, that I didn't write down specifically in this sermon, but, again, looking at the historical setting the, he's writing to the church at Rome. This is a church that Paul himself did not found. He didn't found the church at Rome. There's a good uh, uh, there's a good indication that perhaps this church was established because of those who were there on the day of Pentecost who were converted go back to Rome and establish a church. I want to know um, where Paul's writing from, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So anyway, I want to take all that into consideration. But writing down the observations, I want to. Look at some other things that attention has been given more so to the Jews than they have been to the Gentiles. I mean, really, he addresses the Gentiles in chapter 1, but chapter 2, he's speaking to the Jews. He speaks to them because of their intimate knowledge of the one true God and His Word. They're exposed for their hypocrisy. They assumed or their assurances are removed. They cannot claim circumcision or having the law or bearing the name Jew as is protecting them from the wrath of God. I wrote down that uh, one of the observations leading up to this is because the Jews fail to carry out what God said by faith, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of them. Paul makes it clear that the one who pleases the Lord is the one who has received the circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit of God, and this is by a grace of God. He's made that known. He's made known that the unbelief of the covenant people does not nullify the promises of God because God is faithful and He will fulfill His covenant. Though God sovereignly decrees all things, God is not unjust to inflict wrath even on His covenant people for sin. 
God is never accepting of sin or ever shows favor to sin, and none may justify their sins before God. All are unrighteous, all have turned aside, none seek after God. No one is justified by the keeping of the law, but rather the law gives understanding of sin. So, I'm making these observations. I'm writing all of this down so that in my own mind, as I'm coming to this text, I've written all these things down, and so it's stuck in my mind. That the driving point is that none can save themselves, and God justifies the ungodly through faith alone and Christ alone. Christ is our satisfaction before God, our only hope of redemption. Looking at, again, some of these things leading up to, none can boast before God because salvation has been achieved by Christ, not by works. The Jews and Gentiles are both justified by faith. This doesn't nullify the law. The law is only nullified if one believes that salvation was through the keeping of the law prior. We are to establish the law, to confirm the law. Abraham is the father of the faith. He was justified by faith before the law was given, before circumcision was given. Abraham has nothing to boast about with regards to his salvation. God chose him, blessed him, and did so even in view of him being a sinner. So these are just observations, just writing down thoughts leading up to this, this passage. So looking at this passage, the observations in the text, that if salvation were granted because of works, then salvation is earned or due to the laborer because God is now indebted to him. That's one observation to make. Looking at what the, how the, the Greek actually reads on this, it says, Now to the one working, the reward is not accounted according to grace, but according to debt. So I'm looking at that, I'm observing that. Okay, so if one is trying to earn their salvation before God, and by their performance they expect God to justify them, they are making God a debtor to them. Okay, that's one thing I'm, I'm writing down. The reward of the wage is given because the laborer has performed certain duties commanded by the sovereign master. Now God is obligated to give them their earned wage because of their performance of, the du of their duties. Um, another thing, Paul emphasized that all sin is worthy of God's wrath prior in chapter 2. Since God renders to each according to their deeds as the scripture states, then the earned wages for sinners is justice, not grace. God is credited God is credited to the one who does not labor for salvation, but believes in, in the one who justifies the ungodly. So I write that statement, grace is credited to the one who does not labor for salvation. Underneath it, I put, they believe what? What is it that they believe? If, if they're... If, as he says, the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Okay, faith in what? What is it that they believe? So going back, looking at chapter 3, they believe that Christ is the righteous one of God who was their propitiation, who purchased their redemption, etc., etc. The gospel. This is what we believe. <clears throat> Observations of... The blessing of God is justifying the ungodly. And this was spoken of through David in Psalm 32. This blessing is that God credits righteousness apart from works. So these are observations I'm making from these verses. I'm just writing them down. Just on the surface. What is it that I'm seeing in the text? What are some of the implications that I'm finding from maybe a statement that he's saying? There are some key words that I want to look at. And I want to, I want to be able to write out definitions for in order to bring out a fuller meaning. 
credited as one that um, that has been used throughout this. And so that particular word is, is still used in verse 8, as he is actually quoting from the Greek Septuagint. In verse 8 he says, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Will not credit. It's the same word. So I'm looking at all that. I want to know the definition of that. So some of the key words I'm looking at, blessed. I'm looking at lawless deeds. I'm looking at what does it mean to be forgiven or have your sins covered or not taken into account. And I'm using, um, I'm using my, my Greek New Testament. I'm using um, my, my Greek lexicon. Um, I, I'm, I'm trying to use uh, another book by William Mounts that, that are key words from the Bible so that I can look it up. And I can see what his definitions are. It's actually his lexicon I'm using as well. So there are a number of things I want to know about those particular words. I want to know, and I'm writing down here, what are the implications of what he's saying? And again, what, what is it that you're doing? You're just you're making the observations. You're working through the text. What, what is everything that he said up to this so that I have a clear understanding why he's saying this? So here's the observations. Here's some of the key words. What are the implications of what he's saying? So some of the implications of this passage, very simple. A lot of these things are very on the surface, very simple. Like working for salvation results in condemnation. God does not honor efforts to earn His favor. Grace is given to those who are poor in spirit. The required righteousness is outside of ourselves. God is indebted to no man because all earn wrath. Salvation... It's by grace alone, through faith alone. And this was not introduced in the New Testament because he's going to quote David. David writes of this blessed gift during the time in Israel's history when the law of God was upheld and honored. These are implications from what David is saying. If David is saying, blessed is the man, blessed is the man, and David was one who wrote of the law of God and delighted in the law of God and sought to keep the law of God because in it there is great reward and all of this, and yet he says, acquit me of all my faults then David recognizes that his salvation is by an act of God's grace, not by the keeping of the law. And this during a time in which uh, the law of God was upheld and honored in Israel as David was king. So if this is what David's saying at that particular time, then this is driving home even more of Paul's point of what he is saying, that it's always been salvation by grace. David's words acknowledge the guilt of God's covenant people. And God grants salvation by grace, not by obligation. Also, looking at some of these other things too, some of the implications is he's using Abraham as the great example. Abraham is is the one who is honored. He's the great patriarch of Israel. And if here's an implication of what Paul is saying, that if Paul is saying that Abraham was justified by faith, then Paul is acknowledging Abraham was a ungodly man. That's the implication, right? And so I want to understand if Paul is having to say this to the Jewish people, his Jewish audience, I want to know why he's saying it. And so there are some great commentaries that help to give some of the historical background on on some of these views of the Jews. And one in particular was J.V. Fesco in his... um, his commentary on the book of Romans, where he quotes from uh, 1 Maccabees, he quotes from the book of Jubilees, he quotes one of the rabbis at that particular time in the 2nd century B.C. And these guys are saying things like, Abraham was perfect in all of his ways. There's none like him in glory. 
And so that particular mindset coming into the first century Jews, Abraham is our father. We're children of Abraham. You're not greater than our father Abraham, are you? These are the things that the Jews were saying to Jesus and to John the Baptist. That's probably one of the reasons why John the Baptist said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Don't say that you have Abraham as your father because of their mindset of Abraham. So I'm writing down these implications. Abraham is an ungodly man, and if he can prove that Abraham was justified by faith and Abraham was not justified by his works, then what does that say about you? Because you're not greater than your father Abraham, are you? And they would say, well, no. Okay, well, if he needed grace and he's justified by faith, then that's the same for you. So these are implications of what he's saying. Now, I'm looking at these Greek words that I was telling you about, and I'm writing them down. I'm writing out the definitions of them. Um, I'm putting little summaries at the bottom. If I have the definition of this particular word, then what is, what is the meaning then? I like the word blessed, for example. Uh, it's used in the singular form and in the, uh, the plural form in verses 7 and 8. But the root word makaros, makarios, it means happy, blessed. <clears throat> as, as a noun, it can depict someone who receives divine favor. William Mount says, makarios conveys the idea of being especially favored, blessed, happy, or privileged. This is particularly true of the individual who receives divine favor as in the blessing cited in the Sermon on the Mount. The poor, though weak and powerless now, are in the end privileged because of God's favor toward them. So I'm writing down these definitions. I'm writing down what this word means, how it's used in other places, so that when I come to this word and there's this pronouncement of blessed are you, blessed is the man, that it's not just saying happy are you, happy are you, but it's saying privileged are you, privileged are you. And there's a, reason, there's a reason why we want to know those words. What does it mean uh, to be covered? Uh, sins to be covered. Uh, what does the word mean? It, uh, it denotes uh, concealing or hiding, forgiving. Uh, looking at the equivalent in the, the Hebrew, the Hebrew word is kesa. It simply means to cover, including the idea of covering oneself with clothing. It can also convey the idea of forgiveness. When God hides sin, he makes it completely invisible and casts it into the depths of the sea. So that's why when doing word studies, we want to know what exactly does this word mean? How is it being used? Because the, the words themselves has great impact on the text itself. And one passage that you're probably familiar with, of course, where you can see this and you can see the, the, the results of that or the implications of it, is in John's Gospel at the very end when they're all eating their fish, they're eating their breakfast, and Jesus looks over at Peter and says, Peter, do you love me more than all of these? Right? We know this dialogue. Well, here's, here's some of the things to take into account. Why the words matter is because in this particular case, Peter had just told Jesus the night that he was arrested, he had told Jesus... I'm willing to die for you. I'm willing to give my life for you. And he's basically standing himself out among the rest of them. I'm willing to die for you. And then, of course, we know what happened, right? He, he, denies, our, he denies our Lord three times. 
And so in order to restore Peter back to faith, back to what he is intending on Peter to do, because what does Peter do? I'm going to go fishing. It's like, I failed at this, now I'm going to go fishing. I know that. And so Jesus says to Peter, he asked him the first question, Peter, do you love me more than all of these? And he uses the word agape. Do you love me with that highest sacrificial love more than all of these, Peter? And Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. And he uses the word phileo. You know I have affection for you. So then he says to him again, Peter, do you love me? He doesn't say more than these this time. Now he just says, Peter, do you love me? He uses the word again, agape. Do you love me with the highest love, Peter? Peter responds again, Lord, you know I love you. I have, a, I have affection for you. And then he uses the same word as Peter does. Peter, do you have great affection for me? And so this is when Peter becomes grieved, right? Not because Jesus asked him three times and he's getting irritated because Jesus here, you know, asked him three times. Because what Jesus is doing is saying, okay, Peter, do you love me with that highest love more so than all of these? And Peter responds, he's not willing to use the same word because he knows he, he, knows he failed. He knows, he knows he doesn't love him more than all of these. And then he asked him again, do you love me with that highest form of love, Peter? Not in comparison to anybody else. Peter's still unwilling to use the same word as what Jesus does, but he, said, he uses a word for love to say, I do have great affection for you. And then finally Jesus says, do you have affection for me, Peter? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying, I can work with that. And so he restores Peter back. And so these words matter. And it has great impact on the text itself. So when we're looking at passages of Scripture, whatever passage that we are preaching, we want to know that. We want to know what does it mean that he doesn't take into account something. He doesn't count it. He doesn't calculate it. He doesn't... Uh, set it down as a matter of account. Uh, William Mounts, when it comes to this particular word, uh, legizomai, which is credit or take into account, he says the basic meaning of legizomai has to do with counting or thinking. Paul uses legizomai to declare that God credits or counts faith as righteousness. We can picture faith being set down as a mark on the credit side of a ledger for righteousness rather than the debt side. Right there is an illustration. Some of these things are very helpful as well. This concept stands in contrast to crediting wages to someone who has worked to earn them, just as with Abraham. Faith is credited as righteousness to anyone who does not attempt to earn them, but rather trusts God to give it for him, give it for him by his grace. So taking into these words, then I write little summaries underneath it. And like the summary of the words from verses 3 to 5, Blessed are the privileged to be forgiven of past debts, having their sins covered or hidden in Christ, and being cast into the depths of the sea, and not having their sins taken into account or credited to them. Just summing it up, what did he just say? So I want to have that in my mind because it's taking these things and it's simplifying. It's just writing it out. What does it mean? I'm, I'm definitely one that, <clears throat> that uses commentaries. I want to use commentaries. I want to know what all of church history has, has thought on a certain passage of Scripture so that when I come to this passage and I see the interpretation of it, I'm not coming up with something off the wall, but I'm coming up with something that has been consistently taught throughout the history of the church. So I use commentaries. Uh, for uh, Romans here, 
probably six or seven different commentaries is what I use. Um, you may use more, and, and that's great. One of the things that also kind of hinders us, is, especially in our preparation time, is especially if you're a bivocational pastor or, or a bivocational preacher, um, you only have a certain amount of time that, that you can be studying for these things. You want to get through these. You definitely want to come to understand uh, all the implications of the text, the words that are being used so that you understand the author's intent, why he used this word instead of this word. Commentaries are a great help because they provide a lot of that. You have the more technical commentaries. I think the, the pillar New Testament commentaries are pretty technical. brings out a lot of the Greek words that, that do help. Um, when we were going through the, the Gospel of John, I know uh, D.A. Carson, his, his commentary on the Gospel of John was very, very helpful because he, he breaks down a lot of those Greek words. Um, using technical commentaries, uh, William Hendrickson and uh, Simon Kistemaker, their New Testament commentary said is very, very helpful. Often that's where MacArthur is quoting from, is often Hendrickson. Um, they're, they're technical, but they're also very uh, applicational as well. But I want to have a whole slew of different kind of commentaries. I want to have the technical ones which dig into the words. Uh, the Baker, Baker exegetical commentaries are very good for that as well. I want to have the more um, sermonic kind of commentaries, like with MacArthur. You read a MacArthur commentary, you're basically reading his sermon. I want to have the more uh, applicational um, commentaries at my disposal too. And uh, I was greatly encouraged when Dr. Lawson said this because, you know, you, you don't want to hide and be like, yeah, I'll read that commentary too. But uh, William Wearsby, uh, Wearsby has, uh, I got his commentary on the whole Bible, and it's so much application that is there that helps to form in your mind the things I learned as far as all the technical commentary, all of the implications of the words. I'm looking at how someone else handled the text. I'm looking at the applicational things. I'm bringing it all to bear so that when I'm thinking of my own congregation, that I am using everything that I can in order to bring out the full meaning of a text to them. And again, having uh, an understanding of, um, of Jewish mindset in that day. I want to know the psalm that is being quoted. Uh, why David quoted this psalm. What, is the, what was he meaning in that particular psalm? I want to look at that. There's, there's a number of, of great benefits of using commentaries. It's not cheating. Because the, the thing is, is that you're not going to say anything that somebody else hasn't already said. Really and truly, you're not. Not when it comes to the interpretation of the passage or the exposition of the passage. You're going to say uh, many of the very things that other people have said before you and you're standing on their shoulders. So commentaries are very helpful. So when I have all the commentaries and I'm looking at uh, certain statements that are being made concerning these particular verses in order to bring out the meaning, I have in my mind these particular uh, words that are there, I put summaries underneath them to give me an understanding of, okay, well, this word is being used and this is what it actually means. So in the flow of thought of Paul, Paul is saying this. Paul is saying this. He is saying this. So when I get all of this stuff together, now I'm going to start putting it out. I'm going to start putting it all together in order to form the sermon. I don't take a full manuscript to the pulpit with me. I take more probably... 
partial manuscript, maybe slash sentence outline. Uh, so for this particular sermon, I took uh, I took seven seven pages with me, uh, just all on the front. You know, I don't ever use the back. I just use the front, and that way I can just slide them over, and I don't have to, you know, flip them over and all of that. Environmentalists might get mad at me. That's a waste of paper. Yeah, it's God's paper. Good answer. Um, but I took about seven, seven sheets with me. After, and this is something that Dr. Lawson had taught us, once you begin to work your way now through the text, you have, you've made your diagram, you know your main statements that are bring, bringing out your first headings and your second heading and third, uh, whatever it is that you're doing, and you know the subsets of it, this sentence is modifying this or explaining this or describing this or whatever. Now, now you're, you're putting your, your main heading. Now I'm writing out uh, some of the implications of the, the passage, the mindset of the Jews. I'm writing it all out so that when I come to this and I say, you know, verses 4 and 5, for example, would be like um, justification by faith. That's what it is. It's very simple. I, let, me say, let me say this. I do not use alliteration because I'm going to end up coming up with a bunch of words that start with the same letter that nobody knows what they are anyway because I have to dig through a dictionary and be like, what is, what is a word that means this? I need an A word. You know, give me an A word. I need, I need a word starting with B. What is, so I don't do alliteration. That may be your gift, and, and that's wonderful if you can that's that's great. Um, another thing that I that I personally do not do is often I do not tell the congregation how many points I have or don't have. Because for me, and this is just for me, by all means, again, there's no one way to do this. But for me, when I hear somebody say, as as at Shepherd's Conference this year, when I hear somebody say, I have seven scenes for you. Or seven points, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, we're going to be here forever. This is going to be long. So to me, I'm like, I don't want to tell anybody that. I'm not going to tell the congregation how many points I have. I want them to come with me on the journey. I want them not to hear how many points I have or don't have, but I want them to come with me. And I want to tell them what it is. You're looking at verses 4 and 5. I mean, it's right on the surface. What is Paul saying? We're justified by faith. Very simple. I'm not telling them for me. And again, please don't misunderstand me. I'm saying this for me. I don't tell them my first point is justified by faith. Again, I want you want to have structure. You want to have logical order to everything that you're saying. And that's why it's good to have notes because it keeps you on point instead of uh, some guys are very, very gifted at being able to go up with no notes. R.C. Sproul was one of those guys. Uh, but, but us mere men, you know, we're, we're not Sproul. But, but he's, he was one that can do it. He can, he can preach without notes. Spurgeon was another that could take a very simple note, maybe just a few sentences, and, and preach these amazing sermons. But me, I need something that's going to go with me to the pulpit, that is going to keep me in line, that's going to keep me moving right along so I don't hit all these rabbit trails. So a good sentence outline is, is very helpful. So I want to, I want to think about, as, as I'm working through the text, I want to think about the application to our congregation. 
I don't want to think application to anybody general that's going to listen to it, somebody else's congregation. We're preaching for our congregations. So in our congregation, I'm thinking about, you know, there's, there's people struggling in the marriage. There's people struggling with assurance. There are people who are struggling with the daily activities of life, just trying to keep up. You have single parents out there that are just trying to keep up with everything that's going on in their lives. And I, got, I have them in my mind because they, they are the ones that I want to encourage and I want to help and I want to, to take their, their eyes and, and take them off of their situations and I want them to look at the, at the glorious Christ. So I want to keep those in mind when the application is being made so that when I say to them, privileged are you, privileged are you, dear mom, in all your struggles because Christ has died for you and you have a great expectation of hope to look forward to. You may struggle now, but we have a great hope. So we want to keep in mind the people that we are preaching to, and we want to sprinkle that application throughout the sermon. Um, some, some wait till the end, and that's fine too if you do that. Uh, many of the Puritans, the Puritans had a way of preaching, which was exposition, doctrine, application and and they could do that uh, and it uh, pretty amazingly uh, with uh, Jonathan Edwards it was said of Jonathan Edwards that during his exposition and his doctrine he was lining up his cannon and then when he got to the application he fired wow what a way to to describe someone's preaching but I want to sprinkle that application throughout so that when I get to the end of the sermon as we're bringing all of these things to bear and we're going over the doctrines. And, and in this particular uh, set of verses, you have, of course, him uh, rejecting the notion that uh, anyone can be saved by the works of the law. God is not a debtor to anyone. Everything God does is by an act of his grace. You're bringing out the gracious nature of God. You're bringing out the fact that uh, for someone who believes in him is justified by his faith. Righteousness is credited to them. We have the perfect opportunity to talk about the great exchange right there. We get to magnify Christ in the great exchange. And also being able to express the continuity of the Old and the New Testament. There's not a wedge between the two. Look at this. David said this. This is what is said of Abraham. And then looking at this, between Abraham and David, there's a thousand years here. And it's always been consistently justification by faith alone and Christ alone throughout the entirety of, of God's word, of redemptive history. Never was it works of the law. Now we're under grace. Always justification by faith. So we get to bring those things out from the Old Testament. We get to talk again about the atonement of Christ. Our sins have been covered. They've been paid for. No one can earn their salvation. Only one did. Only one earned God's favor. And that was Christ. So we get to bring out the, the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. So we're able to magnify these areas of theology while bringing to bear the, the, the implication of the passage. And we're sprinkling the application throughout. Some of the, the illustrations that I used are very simple. Again, you know, just in order to try to bring out the meaning of something. If the Jews had a view of Abraham... Um, as, as what some of these 2nd century B.C. writers had brought out, that there's no one like Abraham. He's 
perfect in all of his ways and all of his dealings with God and none like him in glory. And Paul's saying what he's, what he's saying here. What, what's an example that we can use to try to understand the mindset of the Jew when it comes to Abraham? And a very simple thing that, that we can use in our own contemporary setting is Muslims. When you say something bad about Muhammad, they get very violent, very angry, because you're talking about their patriarch. When you speak to Mormons and you say something uh, criticizing Joseph Smith, they get very upset. Why? Because he's the patriarch of their, of their belief. So trying to find contemporary ideas or contemporary examples in order to bring about and say that the Jewish mindset of Abraham is very similar to this. And these are things that we know, things that we can relate to. When it comes to making God a debtor to others because of the performance of their duties, well, that's a very simple illustration there. It's like, you're the employee, you work for the employer, the employer has told you you perform these particular duties and you've earned your wage and I pay you. Well, this is what they're doing when it comes to the Lord saying, I perform my duties, now justify me based on my works. And this is where God is not like an employer to an employee, God is a debtor to no man. And another part of that is when people say, um, Lord, if you, if you do this for me, I'll do this. I will live my life how you desire me to live my life if you will give me this or have this occur in my life. And these are things you should be already be doing anyway. As believers, we should be walking in obedience anyway. But what is it that we're doing? We're saying, let's, let's make a deal. I'll follow what you said in your word, like I should anyway, if you will do this for me. And what is the response? God is no debtor to man. You can't wheel and deal. So those are some applicational things. Those are some illustrations to use. So we're bringing all that to bear within the sermon so that when we, we get to the end of the sermon, um, I, I like to, uh, you know, you, you work through the text and you get everything in the text and uh, you, you got your headings and you know where you're going. Then you go back and you write the introduction. Because when you know where you're going, the introduction then is going to help to introduce that particular uh, set of ideas or just to give the congregation an idea of this is where we're heading in this, in this passage. When it comes to the conclusion, the conclusion is really going to restate a lot of what you said in the introduction, amplified, and it's going to take those times of sprinkling the application throughout, and it's going to bring it to bear even more at the very end. So the application, I don't really write out. I write a few sentences here or there uh, just to remind me of the applications that we've been making thus far. But, but these are things that... Um, that are good and helpful of preparing the sermon, but here's some of the important, other important aspects of it. Uh, Mike Abendroff, who uh, Justin had said uh, was one of my preaching advisors, when he had uh, read one of my, or actually he listened to one of my sermons. He was going to critique one of my sermons. So I sent him the sermon, he listened to it, and then we have a Skype session in which you know, he's going to give me some feedback and pretty much critique the sermon. So we, we get on Skype. I have all the kids out of the house. Nobody's going to be making all kinds of noise. And so Mike Abendroth, he's talking to me. 
and my wife is actually sitting over at the bar there. She's reading her book or whatever. And uh, Mike Abendroth had said something kind of funny. And I started laughing. And he said, there it is. And I said, there's what? And he said, has anyone ever told you that you have a nice smile? And I'm like, where are we going with this? And my wife is reading her book going, uh, no, no, no one really said that. He said, I just watched a 45-minute sermon of you going like this. He said, it's, it's nice to see you smile. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I see where you're going here. I see, I, I get the point now. He said to me, he said, what is it that you take to the pulpit with you? At the time, I was taking a full manuscript. And it's, it's been, you know, four or five years ago, whatever it was. And uh, he said, do you think it would be inappropriate throughout your manuscript just, just to put a smiley face every now and again, just to remind you that you have to give your people a break before you assault them again? <laughs> I, said, I said, you know, probably not. That sounds good. I can put little smiley faces in there. So here's some things to keep in mind. You want to have passion, and we talked about that, developing passion. And passion comes from your study and, and learning of the Lord and all of this. <clears throat> but you have to remember this, uh, some of these things as well that I want to share with you. And this is from uh, Dr. Beakey's lectures to us, and it's also contained in Dr. Beakey's uh, uh, book of Reformed Experiential Preaching. So here are some things that he says that I think are very important in the, in the delivery part of your sermon. One thing before I say this, Abram Droth asked me this. He said, how long do you work on that manuscript? And I said, probably takes me about two hours to write it. He says, how much time do you actually have for sermon prep? Because you, you're a bivocational pastor. I said, 10 hours, 12 hours maybe. He said, and here you're working two hours just on the manuscript. He said, I want you to stop taking the manuscript. He said, you need to do your work in the text, understand the text. He said, you can do that, and you can do it in a reasonable amount of time. He said, but then I want you to put your pen down, and I want you to sit back in your chair, and I want you to then to start meditating on the passage and how it's going to apply to your people, because that's where you need to be is in the application of bringing it to your people. So you can do all the work, and you can stay so busy in the work that we neglect the most important part, which is the application. So just keep that in mind, too. Um, Jonathan Edwards, he says this, When we preach, we are preaching to the whole person aiming at their hearts. <clears throat> he says, I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections of my hearers as high as I possibly can, provided that they are affected with nothing but the truth and with affections that are not disagreeable to the nature of what they are affected with. Our people don't, don't so much need to have their heads stored as to have their hearts touched. And they stand in, in the greatest need of that sort of preaching that has the greatest tendency to do this. So, how do we touch the heart? Sometimes it's not just, you're doing wrong, you're doing wrong, you're doing wrong. Yes, you're doing wrong. This is how things should go. But let me present to you uh, the Lord who 
whose mercies are new every morning. Let me, let me elevate him up that you may behold him who has saved you in spite of yourself. We can't exasperate our people. Whatever it is that we're preaching to them, ultimately, there's going to be good news. There's got to be good news. You can really beat people down. So here's what Dr. Beakey says. He says, Reformed experiential preaching explains how things ought to go in the Christian life. Example, Romans 8. How they actually go in the Christian struggles, which is the reality of Romans 7. And the ultimate goal in the kingdom of glory, which is the optimism of Revelation 21 and 22. So when you're preaching to your people, yes, you're telling them, this is how things ought to go in your life. This is what you should be doing. Yes, this is what you are doing. But praise God, one day you will do this right. So there's always that, that aspect of hope that you give to your people. You're not going to love the Lord as you should now, and you beat yourself up about it, but praise God that the Spirit of God intercedes and He perfects your prayers and he perfects your singing and your worship and your praise. But one day when you stand in the presence of God, you will do this perfectly. So that helps to, to, to strengthen them to, to still carry on and to still move forward, uh, knowing that they're not going to do it perfectly, but that one day they will. So we have to give them that kind of uh, understanding of this is what you should be doing, this is what you are doing, but this is what you will do. Dr. Beakey likes to use the word experimental or experiential. And sometimes that makes us a little nervous because we don't want to come across as, as you know, being charismatic and we're just you know, trying to elicit uh, emotional responses using manipulations or any of these sort of things. But here's what he says. Experimental preaching stresses the need to know the great truths of the Word of God by personal experience. It also tests our personal experience by the doctrines of the Bible. It brings truth to the heart to illuminate who we are, where we stand with God, how we need to be healed, and where we need to be healed. It's the truth of God that we proclaim to the heart. We're not eliciting emotions from various stories that tug heartstrings. We want emotions. We want to aim at the heart. We want the heart to respond, but we want it to respond because of the truth that is being given to the people. That's one of the reasons why when you have disagreements, like uh, we've had disagreements in our past about what songs that we sing. Well, you're singing these songs and you just want people to be stoic. You don't want them to have emotions. And it's like, no, we want our people to even have emotions, absolutely, but we want emotions to be based on truth. In the same way in your preaching, you want emotion, yes, and you want to, to, to aim at the heart, but you want it to be because of what truth that you are giving. The Scottish theologian and minister Robert Burns, he says, Christianity should not only be known and understood and believed, but also felt and enjoyed and practically applied. What is the chief end of man, right? To enjoy God, right? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But the enjoyment part is there. To enjoy Him. We enjoy Him when we glorify Him, yes, but there's still that enjoyment. There's still the heart that, that longs to delight in Him and praise Him and love Him. 
The 18th century minister Thomas Bradbury, he says, Religion is doctrinal in the Bible, experimental in the heart, and practical in the life. Now, throughout all of this, especially as we're aiming toward the heart in all of this, we still recognize and understand very clearly that the only one that can transform the heart is the Spirit of God. We know we can't do it. Only He can. He's the one who applies the Word of God as Christ stands above the man and He's preaching to His people and, and the Lord is God the Father is being exalted and glorified and the Spirit of God applying uh, the message to the hearts of the people. We know that He's the one who stirs in the heart and transforms and, and the fruit that is, that is born is, is from His work. We don't change people, of course, by the experience, but the Spirit of God is what changes the heart. We want to be faithful in everything that we do so that God would empower it and that He would use it in order to touch the hearts of others. We're basically saying to the congregation, to taste and see that the Lord is good. This is what we say. And the Spirit applies His Word to their hearts that they feast and are satisfied in Him. We call them to respond, and the Spirit is the one that nourishes. The New England Puritan Cotton Mather, he says, Let not the true bread, the true bread of life be forgotten, but exhibit as much as you can of a glorious Christ unto them. Yea, let the motto upon your whole ministry be, Christ is all. End quote. With each sermon that we are presenting to people, we're presenting it with urgency, we're presenting it with passion. We are, we are wanting to, to lift their eyes and behold their God. We want them to live each day uh, delighting in the Lord by what they've received on the Lord's Day, carrying out throughout their personal study through the week. We want them to delight in Him and to see how they should live before our great King. A concluding view of that is in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. The Apostle Paul says, We proclaim Him, admonishing, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And that's the goal of our preaching. So don't let other things hinder you in this goal. Some of the things, and I'll read these very quick and we'll end. Some of the things that can hinder us is having false goals of our preaching such as having the goal of attracting and entertaining a crowd of people, educating big brains while neglecting withered hearts. And that's what we've got to be careful of. We can wow people with, with knowledge of God and, and uh, again, these big $5 words, but what, what is it doing to, to the one who sits in the back who, who is struggling in their life? Uh, we can't neglect the withered hearts. Seeking superficial decisions for Christ to count as conversions. Promoting a social or political agenda without a heavenly focus. Generating warm feelings, but not touching the heart with the truth. And advancing our own honor and influence. These are false goals. These are things that will hinder us in our preaching. But rather, let us do this. 
let us saturate ourselves with God's word that Christ is our greatest delight. And that when he is our greatest delight, then our aim for our people will be that he would be their greatest delight. That their aim would be to magnify him, emphasize him, place him above all things. That their hearts would be captivated, their affections amplified of the great king of kings. That's who we are presenting to our people. is Christ, the great king, our only sovereign the master, the savior, the perfect spotless lamb of God. That's who we present. That's who we magnify. So the goal of our preaching is to to take their eyes, to place it upon him. The goal of our preaching is to present to them his truth, that they would be comforted, rebuked, strengthened, whatever it is, convicted, converted. We recognize that there are varieties of peoples within our congregations. Not everybody is saved. Not everybody is as learned as others. So we keep that in mind. We, we feed those that have been seasoned. We're feeding those that maybe are new believers. We're calling the sinners to repentance in Christ. But all of the goal of everything is the magnification of Christ. And Dr. Beeky said it this way. He said, in reference to the Apostle Paul, he said it's as if the Apostle Paul is the way in which he is preaching that he is like the high priest in the Old Testament who is offering his sacrifice before the Lord as a soothing aroma. And that's how our preaching needs to be. That we are presenting Christ in the same way as the priest of old would present a sacrifice as a soothing aroma to the Lord. So I pray that that, that would be the goal of our preaching. Uh, thank you all for your attention. And, and if we can be any more of a help to you, uh, please let me know. And if you like some of these uh, handouts that were given to us at the seminary, please let me know and I'll try to uh, email them to you. So thank you all.